You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 today. Today is an exciting day uh, because for the past six to seven months, we have been looking at the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. Uh, and it's important because we said very early on that our goal is not to get through the book of Ephesians, but to rather get the truths that are in the book of Ephesians. And so uh, what you notice, and we said this a long time ago, and if you read through the book of Ephesians, you would know that there are not any commands. There's not a single command given in the first three chapters. But when we get to chapters four through six, we will see tons of commands, command after command after command. The first three chapters were focused in on what is known as our position in Christ, who we are in Christ as Christians. It talks about our status. Uh, and what we saw in those first three chapters is that this is not what we hope to be. This is actually who we are, all because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I just want to recap just quickly because it's important to remind ourselves of these truths of who we are in Christ because they are actually foundational for the commands that we will see in chapters four through six, okay? Uh, and it's significant that Paul structures it this way, this letter this way, where he starts off with what we said is the indicative, the who you are, and then moves to the imperative, what you should do. And so before, before Paul gives a single to-do, he gives us a high dose of who we are, okay? Who we are. Are. He reminds us, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not some of them, not most of them, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has not withheld anything from us whatsoever. He has given us all good things that we need. As we moved into verses 4 through 14, we saw that we were chosen, that we were adopted, that we were redeemed, that we were forgiven, that we were sealed with his promised Holy Spirit, and that we were given an inheritance, a powerful, wonderful, all-inclusive inheritance. When we moved into chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10, we see that God himself made us who were dead alive. We were dead, unable to make any move towards God whatsoever. God in our deadness came and made us alive and saved us by his grace. In verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, we saw that we who were once far off were brought near. We who were once excluded we're now included in the family of God. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth that we've seen. And a result of all of this, because we're now invited into the family of God, we have bold access to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, 100 years a century, right? And we can keep going and going. We have complete and total access to God. You don't need an appointment, like you need to go to the doctor or whatever. No, God is always there. 
complete and total access to God. Because of all of this, Paul stops at the end of chapter 3 and breaks into praise for God. And he says this, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is lifted up to the heavens and he lifts us up. He takes us up there with him. And then when we get to chapter four, he brings us right back down to earth. And he says, basically, in light of everything that I've just told you, how should you then respond? What should your response be to these amazing, uh, incomprehensible truths? And so we see them in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This ends the reading of God's word. We are desperate to know what it says. And so let's look to him uh, for guidance. Father, we come before you and I do pray. I pray that we would tremble before your word. I pray, God, that the enemy would not be able to um, distract us today, that the enemy would not be able to uh, allow this to go in one ear and out the other, Lord. But I pray, God, that it would sink deep in our hearts. I pray that it would cut like a knife that it would change us, that it would transform us, Lord, and that we would say, how should we now live in light of what we have learned today? Empower me, help me to say only the things that I should say and nothing else. And I pray, oh, I pray, God, that I would truly represent you. Never, ever let me misrepresent you. And if I ever do, help me to immediately repent of that, Lord. This is your word. You speak and let me uh, move behind the scenes. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This section of chapter four, uh, it begins uh, what is known as the practical section. And it is so very rich. And in fact, these six verses, they're so rich that we're going to spend four weeks on them. This will lead us, just to give you a, a little heads up, this will lead us into our summer series, which will start in the first week in June, as we'll be talking about what the Bible says about various topics. And then we will pick back up in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 7 uh, in uh, the fall. Uh, what we see in these next, what we'll see in these next three chapters is we will see about 40 different commands. Remember, no commands at all in 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3. And now we just get a load of command after command after command. And then with those are our are, are subcommands as well. When I worked at Walgreens as a, as a pharmacist uh, for a couple of decades, one of the things that we were required to do every year was to sign a code of conduct. Okay, a code of conduct, which said, you as a Walgreens employee, this is how you, you are to conduct yourself when you are at work. 
this is what you can and cannot say to customers, right, regarding your particular area. This is, it even went to, this is how you can dress, what you have to dress. All of us guys had to wear this silly tie, okay? This was required. It wasn't optional at all. It was a code of conduct. Why? Because we represented the company. The company wanted, in this case, they wanted to make money. They didn't want to lose customers, and so they wanted to make sure that we were taking care of the people who came in. What they didn't want to hear is someone, they didn't want to get a complaint that said something like this. I was at the Seawall Pharmacy this past week, and here's what the pharmacist said to me. I want to let you know that I will never, ever come back to Walgreens again. I won't do it. If this is how you run your stores, then I'll go over to CVS or I'll go over to somewhere else. This is what happens when people don't follow the code of conduct. And that's why there is a code of conduct for many different businesses. What I believe that we have in Ephesians chapters four through six is we have a code of conduct for the Christian life. This is how we, as the people of God, as the children of God invited into his family, this is how we are to conduct ourselves. So the question is, how do the people of God uh, in God's family conduct themselves? What, is their, what should their behavior look like? Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 answers those questions. Now, I want to be very quick right now to say this. These are not requirements about how you get into the family of God, okay? These are not, as long as you're doing this and this and this, then you will get into the family of God. No, they are expected behaviors because you are in the family of God, okay? Um, so that's why I want to be very clear on that because Satan loves to twist that. Well, you're not this, so you're not in the family of God. Well, you're not this, so you're not in the family of God. And so we start to work for God's favor. Hopefully God will accept me. No, God only accepts you because of what Christ has already done for you. So uh, these are not, how do I get into the kingdom? This is, I am in the family of God. Therefore, how should I now live? So let's dive into the text. Paul begins uh, by identifying himself as a prisoner of the Lord, as a prisoner of Jesus. Now, I'm not sure exactly why he does this. He's done this a couple times in here, uh, and we're, we're speculating. Most of the commentators that I read, they speculate as well. Um, and so I'm just going to give you a couple reasons why maybe he identifies himself here again as a, a prisoner of the Lord, so you can take it uh, for what it's worth. Um, first of all, one of the reasons he might be doing this is because he's demonstrating that the Christian life is costly. The Christian life is costly. Now, if you read through this book, this letter to the Ephesians, you won't see any mentions of persecution directly. You know, he won't say, hey, you're going to endure this. If you're going to live this way, you're going to endure this. They're implied, okay? Um, and so Paul is saying that the, the Christian life, maybe he's saying that the Christian life is, is costly. And I was thinking about this uh, this past week. We as Christians can tend to fall into what we might call our, our uh, safest life now, right? Where we live a very safe life. Where we, we're, gonna, we're careful about what we say because we don't want to invite persecution. We're careful about how we stand because others might look at us and others might uh, start to threaten our jobs or, or make fun of us. And we don't take into consideration that Jesus said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
or take up your cross and follow me, or blessed are you when people speak all manner of evil against you on account of me. But we like to live our safest life right now, right? I don't want to create any waves. I don't want to, if I say this, I, I firmly believe it, but if I say this, then my teachers may look at me differently. My fellow students may look at me differently. They may ostracize me. And so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And Paul, by implication, is saying, hey, I'm in prison right now, a physical Roman prison right now, because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I can't keep my mouth shut. I have to proclaim the word of God no matter what it costs me. So that may be one of the reasons that he says that. But we also, also talked about this dual meaning of prisoner of the Lord. It could mean he's in prison because of what he has been doing. Or he could also be saying, and he probably is also saying at the same time, I am ultimately I'm not a prisoner of the Roman government. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I lost my life to him a long time ago. And the implication is this, the commands that I'm about to just blast you with right now, they're not my commands. It's not, I've thought about this as I'm sitting in this jail. This is, these are commands from Jesus himself, your master as well. You do not own your life. Jesus does. And so um, regardless of what Paul's intentions are in uh, proclaiming, uh, you know, reminding them that he's a prisoner of the Lord, he comes out guns blazing. Okay. I mean, he's just like, we just talked about all this stuff. Now, boom, here's how you should respond. He says this, I urge you, <coughs> excuse me, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I wish we could spend more time on this. He is just urging. To, the word urge means to come alongside. It is a coming alongside and, and, and walking with them and cheering them on and encouraging them and admonishing them where necessary. Paul was not the kind of pastor that just got up there, preached, and then walked away. It's like, I'm done with my job. You know, you do with it, whatever you're going to do. No, he pleaded with them. I just told you a bunch of stuff. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you really get what I'm saying? How is your life going to change? No, no, you're not being conformed to the image of Christ. No, didn't you hear what I said? He's urging them. He's not walking away. He's genuinely concerned for the people that God has entrusted to his care. God specifically put those people in his church or as they were listening to him. And Paul cared deeply about them. He wanted them to understand these truths and apply them to their lives. So what is he urging them to do? He's urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Now, when I hear that word walking, if we're looking at the whole context of Ephesians, it should take us back to Ephesians chapter two. So I'm gonna ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. I gave you script, uh, several scripture references that we're going to look at today. I'm just going to ask you to stay specifically in the book of Ephesians. I'll read the other ones. Uh, so whenever I'm talking in Ephesians, it'd be great if you could turn uh, to that passage. Okay, so Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. What he does here is remember, he's not giving any commands. He's reminding them of who they were, who they were and how they were walking. When he says walk, that's how you live. Okay. And he says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you were, right? Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And actually, when we get into Ephesians 4 through 6, we're going to see how he addresses the body and the mind. But that was our walk. But now in Christ, we have a new walk. We have a new walk. We should be living in a new way. He addresses this a couple chapters over in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. So if you can turn there. He's going to use the same terminology of a walk, which means a living. And he says this. Now, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There is a new walk that we are called to. There is a new way of life that we in the family of God are called to. It is a holy and a righteous life. It's a life that reflects the character of God himself. We are to be like our Father. Several times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you hear this phrase where God says, be holy for I am holy. Reflect my character. Represent me properly in this world. And so in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, Paul talks about this new worthy walk that you and I have been called into. You and I, I want you to listen to this. You and I as Christians have been called into something great. Do you realize that? You have been called into something really, really great that is beyond you, that has implications beyond Galveston, beyond like this life, this temporary life. We've been called to something really, really great. And the only thing that will hinder us from accomplishing the greatness that God has marked out for our life is if we get tripped up, if we get tripped up, if we stumble. You don't have to turn here, but it reminds me of uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where uh, the writer of Hebrews compares the Christian life to a grueling marathon. I don't know if you've ever run in a marathon. I have not. Just the thought of a marathon just makes me tired, okay? When I played soccer, we would have to run two miles before practice and I was like throwing up. There's no joke. Like I'm like, ugh, you know, it's a pain. But I know if two miles is considered a long distance, I've done that, all right? But it's, it's hard and you have to be thinking, you're just thinking, okay, I'm almost done, I'm almost done. 
And so uh, the writer of Hebrews here's com- uh, here compares the Christian life to not a sprint, but to a marathon where you're just, your body is just like, I can't, I gotta stop. I gotta stop. I gotta stop. Right. And he, helps, uh, he tells them to keep pressing on. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. According to these verses, if we are to run well, which we all should be desiring, if we're to run well, then we need to lay aside every sin and every weight that tangles us up. Let me talk about sin for a second here. Sin definitely trips us up, okay? It gets our focus off of what is really important, okay? It makes us love things more than God. And we're talking right out blatant sin, is contrary to God. And when we're living in it, we cannot please God. As a result, what happens is that it causes guilt. It causes shame in our lives. If you've ever lived in sin, you know the guilt. You know how the enemy just comes in and just, and just bombards you. It erects walls of separation between us and God and us and each other. That's what sin does. Now, I want to be quick to say this. If you are a Christian, your sin will never erect a permanent wall between you and God. Ultimately, there are no walls between you and God, and they will not uh, keep up walls between you and other people, okay? Ultimately, all those walls will be taken down. But I'm going to tell you what, if you're living in sin, it sure feels like there's a huge wall. It feels like all communication has been broken off between you and God, between you and others. It feels like all love of God has been broken off. All support from God has been broken off. All care from God has been cut off. It feels like that. And that's because those are the natural consequences of sin, okay? If you don't want to listen to God, if you want to rebel against God, In a sense, sometimes God is like, okay, do it, do it, right? And then it feels like he withdraws from you. He lets you have your own way. And then you're left in your sin and you are absolutely miserable. You're absolutely miserable. And that's God's intention to say, see, I told you. This is why you don't want to live in this. This is why you want to run away from that as fast as you can. So sin definitely trips us up, but also some good things in life can trip us up as well, right? Uh, They can hinder us from running well. Is there anything wrong with having material possessions? No, right? Is there anything wrong with going on, on, on great vacations? No. Is there anything wrong with friends? No, these are all gifts from God. They're amazing gifts from God. But when any of these or other things start to get in the way of our service to God, if at any time these things start to become our primary things to where we desire possessions more than God, where we find our ultimate joy and happiness in possessions rather than God, when we find our joy more in our children than God or in our friends more than God or in the next vacation that I'm going to go or in sports or whatever more than God, then those good things become a hindrance and they trip us up. Now my focus isn't on pleasing God. Now my focus is on, oh, I want to enjoy this and I want to enjoy this more and more, 
Once again, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy good things in life, but when those become the primary thing, whoa, they need to be laid aside at that time. And when you lay them aside uh, and you're truly walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you are called, I believe that God is smiling down on you and that absolutely nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible when it comes to uh, service to God. The spiritual growth and unity of this church is possible. It's possible when we are laying aside those sins and those things that weigh us down. Unity is always a problem in the church. Satan loves to come, kill, steal, and destroy. But when we're laying aside those sins in our lives, our selfishness, then unity and growth in this church is possible. The salvation of the lost in this community. There's about 50,000 people on this island. I would imagine most of them don't know Christ, right? When we lay aside the sins in our lives, when we lay aside those things that hinder us and get our focus off of our real mission of making disciples, man, the salvation of those things, of those people are possible, right? And I'm not just talking one or two, I'm talking a mass conversion, seeing hundreds of people, thousands of people bow the knee to Jesus. What else is possible? Well, when we lay aside those sins in our lives, when we lay aside those things that hinder us, then we're opening up the door for everyone, everyone in the church, not a small portion of the church, but everyone in the church to recognize that they as a Christian have a spiritual gift and that they will say, I will use this gift. There are no people sitting on the bench, so to speak. Everyone is like, this is what my gift is. Where can I go? Where can I be used? It becomes possible when we lay aside the sins in our life, when we lay aside those things which are tripping us up, the ability to do beyond what we could even think or imagine becomes possible when we lay aside those sins and those things that hinder us. All things are possible when we're walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. This is what the worthy walk is. Uh, and this is how uh, we get our daily practice to match our eternal position. Okay, what do I mean by that? Positionally, we are perfect in the eyes of God, right? But you're looking at your life and you're saying, I am not perfect, right? As we adopt, if you will, this code of conduct that God is calling us into in his family, what happens is that you see Perfect, positionally, you are perfect, and you'll see through the course of your life, you know, and there'll be my, there's going to be some bumps, right? But you're becoming more and more like Christ, and you're becoming more and more holy, and you're reflecting his character. And so, what I think that Paul is saying in these chapters is this you're a child of God. Act like it. Act like it. Okay? You're, you're a child of the King of Kings, you represent him act like it. Within every household, there are rules of conduct. And the same is true with the family of God. And I just want to reiterate again, right? You do not obey these commands to get into the family of God. Rather, you obey them because you are in the family of God. And you stand in awe that you, a wretched sinner, completely unlovely, spiritually speaking, have been invited into the family of God. You stand in awe of that, and then you willingly and enthusiastically embrace all of these commands. You embrace them knowing that they are what is best for 
you. They're what's best for you as an individual. God is not trying to steal your joy. We've said this many times before. You know, God is not up there. It's like anytime human beings start to have fun, he's like, nope, make a rule about that. Nope, I'm going to make a rule about that. No, that's not what God is doing. He's trying to maximize your joy. And he's saying this, I know that if you do this, I know that it's going to bring some temporary satisfaction and it's going to feel really good. But the lasting effects are not going to be good. You're going to wake up the next day and you're going to be hurting. I was thinking about this, right? If, if, you're, if you're into exercising and working out and then you see that box of donuts, right? And you're like, man, they would really taste good until you eat them all. When you're eating them, they really taste good, right? But afterwards, well, how do you feel? Ugh, right? I think I'm going to throw up, right? I don't have any energy. That's what sin does. Satan is dangling those donuts, if you will, before you. And he's saying, come on, come on, just indulge. Just indulge once. It's going to be so good. It's going to taste so good. And then we do. And then we feel lethargic. We feel beaten down afterwards. That's what sin does. And so God's rules, his, 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 his code of conduct, if you will, says, I know what's best for you. And I want you to avoid those things that are going to hinder you. And not only is it best for you as an individual, it's also best for the church as a whole. Because if you are struggling in sin, then you are weakening the church, right? Because you have a specific role in the church, a specific gift that God has given you. And now you've pulled yourself out and there's a gap there. And the church becomes weaker. And God is saying, I don't want my church to be weak at all. I want my church to grow in power and more power and more power. And then when we fall into sin and we live in sin, we're just stealing that power. That's what it means. That's what we're talking about here. After all, remember that you and I were on the outside. And God, the God of heaven, chose us, redeemed us, forgave us, welcomed us into, us into his family. So how should we respond to someone who gave his son's life for us? Well, the simple, simple answer is that we give our entire lives to him. That is the only proper response. We should say and mean, okay, and live out this. All my thoughts, words, and actions, I yield over to you, God. I yield it over to you, God. And this is consistent with the commands that we will see uh, in these chapters. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, he says this, that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That deals with our thought life. How we think about things should be renewed. We don't think the way that we used to think. We think in a different way. In Ephesians 4.29, he says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is, as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That deals with our words, right? So we saw it's dealing with our, our thoughts, and now it's dealing with our words. And then Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 3, and many other passages in the first, uh, in the second, uh, in the last three chapters, he says this, Therefore be imitators of God, 
as beloved children. That's talking about your actions, your physical actions. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then he starts to go into some specific actions. And the first one, the first two that he says is this, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Your actions, are they reflecting the character of God? Are you imitating God right now? And if you're involved in sexual immorality, no, you're not. You're not. It's not consistent with the worthy walk that we're called to. Our thoughts, words, and actions no longer belong to us. Do you realize that? Our thoughts, words, and actions no longer belong to us. According to 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. According to James 3, we are to control our tongue because it can cause a whole mess of problems. And according to Romans chapter 12, we are to present our entire bodies as a living sacrifice because according to 1 Corinthians 6, 20, we have been bought with a price and we are no longer our own. We're no longer our own. You don't control. You don't own your eyes, your hands, your feet, your mouth. You don't own those. Christ purchased them. In these three chapters, uh, Ephesians 4 through 6, are all about the worthy walk. They're all about reflecting the character of God. So here's what I want to do with the couple minutes that we have remaining is I'm going to go through all of these commands in Ephesians 4 through 6, rapid fire. Okay, we're not going to be stopping and talking about any of them. Uh, but what I want you to do, I'm going to do it in a question form. I'm going to ask you questions, and I want you to do this. I want you to do a Psalm 139 here where the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And I'm going to ask you questions based on these commands, and I want you to evaluate your life. Okay? And I want you to say, yes, I think that I am following. I think I'm reflecting the character of God here. Or, whoa, no, I'm not reflecting the character of God. So this will give you an idea of, wow, what do I need to work on? Because once again, my, our ultimate goal, right, is to be holy. Why? So that we can be accepted by God? No, 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 no. So that we can have power in this life to do beyond what we could even think or imagine. All right? <clears throat> so here we go. All right, so starting in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he starts off by talking about <clears throat> this worthy walk, and he said this walk involves humility, gentleness, and patience. So let me ask you this. Are you walking humbly? Are you living in a humble way, or are you walking in pride? Or you won't admit that you're wrong, right? Are you humble, or are you prideful? Are you gentle with others? Are you patient with those around you, especially those in the church? Or as soon as someone offends you, are you all over them? Are you fighting against them? Are you patient with them? <clears throat> in verses 17 through 21, are you living life in a way that reflects the character of God? Or are you living life in a way that reflects the values of the world? Do you look different from the world or do you look similar to the world, the same as the world? Are your values opposed to the world or are they right in line with the values of the world? 
Verse 22, have you put off the old sinful desires of your previous life in Christ? Have you done that? Now, this might be difficult for some. Like if you came to Christ at the age of six, you didn't have a whole lot of past, right? You know, that you can talk about. But a lot of people come to Christ later in their life. Does your life now in Christ look different than your life did before Christ? Or does it look the same? Verse 23 of chapter four, are you being renewed in the spirit of your mind to live a life that is holy and righteous? Has your mind been transformed so that now you think and now you speak and now you act in a way that is in accord with righteousness and holiness? Verse 25, are you speaking the truth with everyone or are you dishonest? Okay. Are you speaking the truth? So when someone comes to you, do you speak lies to them because you don't want to offend them, even though it might be something that they need to hear and they might not like you if you say this? Or are you, are you holding off, right? Uh, because once again, you don't, you, you, you don't want to offend. You don't want to hurt someone, okay? When you should be speaking the truth. Are you being honest with everyone? Verse 26 is your anger a godly anger or is it a sinful, selfish anger? Okay, what I mean by that is do you get mad because God is offended or misrepresented or do you get more angry because you are offended and misrepresented? That you don't get the recognition that you need, that you're being marginalized. Does that make you angry? Verse 28, are you a thief or do you work hard in order to make an honest living so that you can make money so that you can help others? Are you taking in a dishonest way or are you working in a hard way so that you can give to others? Verse 29, do your words, do you use your words to cut people down or do you use your words to build others up? And I'm talking, I'm not just talking in the church, right? Because we know the people that were around, right? And we know what to say. But I'm talking when you're in private. Are you using words to cut down maybe the president of the United States, maybe other people at your work or in your school or something like that? Are you using your words to cut them down or are you using your words to build them up? Okay. Verse 30 do your current day-to-day -day actions grieve or honor the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit who is living in you. The things that you're doing and saying and thinking is the Holy Spirit like, yes, yes, or Ugh, no, no, that's not what I want to see in your life. Verses 31 through 32, are you filled with bitterness, wrath, anger, malice, and slander? Or are you kind to all, tender-hearted, forgiving, just like Jesus has forgiven you? All the junk that you've done against Jesus and he forgives you. Do you extend that same forgiveness to others or are you like, oh no, <laughs> sorry, nope, you're not going to say that to me, you're not going to do that to me, I will never forgive you. Moving into chapter five, are you an imitator of God who's walking in love or do your, does your life more mimic the world? Are you indistinguishable from the world? Verses three through nine of chapter five, are you involved in sexual immorality, either physically, verbally, mentally? 
Or are you covetous? Are you desiring what others have? Discontent with what God has given you? Wanting more stuff, more stuff? Or are you sexually pure in your thoughts, words, and actions? Are you content with what God has given you? Not always looking around saying, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. Why do they get that? Why can't I have that? Verse 10, are you trying to learn more about God uh, so that you can discern what is pleasing to him? Are you looking into his word and saying, God, what is it that you want? How do I please you? Or do you just not care about that? Verses 11 through 14, are you living like the world or are you exposing the sins of the world? Are you calling the world out? Are you saying, I'm looking at the entertainments of the world? Nope. Nope, that doesn't conform to, to Christian living. That doesn't conform to God's standards. I'm going to call that out. Nope, there's, the world says that this is okay. Nope, this lifestyle is not okay. The world says that it's okay to be slanderous. Nope, nope, it, no. I'm not going to conform to that. I'm going to expose it. I'm going to fight against it. I'm going to fight against the, the entertainments of the world, the philosophies of the world, the speech of the world. Are you fighting against those? Or are you engaging in them? Verses 15 and 16, are you careful about how you live your life, walking in wisdom, the wisdom of God and making the best use of every opportunity that God places you in? Are you looking for opportunities to represent Christ and to share Christ, or are you just wasting opportunity after opportunity after opportunity? Do you care? Are you living a careful life? Or are you living a careless life? Careless with your thoughts, careless with your words, careless with your actions, not caring what effect it may have on others or that they may dishonor God. Verse 18, are you controlled by substances like drugs or alcohol or are you controlled by the Holy Spirit? Where do you find uh, your, your, your joy and your satisfaction, how you deal with life? Do you find it in drugs and alcohol or other things or do you find it in the Spirit of God? Verses 19 through 21, are you in constant fellowship with God's people, singing uh, with them, uh, praising God, thanking uh, God with them, submitting to one another, or have you isolated yourself, living your own way, cutting yourself off from the community of God and accountable to nobody? Nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody's going to ask me what I'm doing. I don't have to answer to anyone because I've cut myself off from everyone. Verses 22 through 31, if you're a wife, are you submitting to the leadership of your husband as to Christ, knowing that you, he will one day give an account for how he has led you and the family? If you're a husband, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Or are you loving and serving yourself? Are you, seeking your, uh, your, uh, are you seeking for your wife to be more conformed to the image of Christ or you just not care? It's her own life. She'll do what she wants. Moving into chapter six, if you're a child, are you obeying and honoring your parents? Are you obeying and honoring your parents as God has commanded or are you rebelling against them, questioning them, uh, fighting against them every step of the way? And if you are obeying, are you doing it with joy or begrudgingly? Because if you don't, I'm gonna be punished. I don't want to obey you, but I know that there's consequences, so I'm going to. In verse 4, if you're a father, are you raising your children to fear the Lord? Are you reflecting the character of God in your parenting, or are you causing undue stress in your kids' lives? Verses 5 through 8, uh, if you're an employee, 
uh, working for a company? Do you follow all the company rules? And do you work as if God were your boss, seeking to please him and see the company flourish? Or do you complain and fight against your boss, seeking to undermine him or her, talking bad about them and behind their back to the other employees? Verse 9, if you are an employer, do you treat your employees with respect and gentleness, not showing favoritism, or are you selfish and harsh and uncaring? Verses, six through, or verses 10 through 18, finally, are you aware that there's a spiritual warfare going on around you? Do you realize that there's an enemy who hates you, who wants to fight against all these things, wants you to be a horrible husband, a horrible wife, a horrible father, wants you to engage in sexual immorality, wants you to, uh, to be selfish, wants you to lie? Do you realize that there's a spiritual battle going on around you? And are you equipped having put on the armor of God? And are you praying desperately every minute of the day saying, God, help me, help me to please you, to live a holy life so that I don't dishonor you. Help me to see the opportunities to share Christ with other people. Or are you just coasting through life, being defeated over and over again, fainting when you should be praying? Those are the questions that we all need to ponder. And as we work through these last three chapters, um, particularly as we get to the fall, what we'll see is that all of these commands in chapters four through six are based on truths in chapters one through three. Let me give you one example just quickly. Why should we seek to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace as we find out as we're commanded to in, Roman, in uh, Ephesians 4, 3? Because according to chapter two, God went to great lengths to by you, to put you into his family, and to make you one. Why would you fight against that? Why would you go against that? Okay, so uh, once again, as we get into the fall, we're going we're gonna to be doing some heart surgery. Okay, I'm going to, the word of God, not me, okay, um, the word of God is hopefully going to rip you wide open and expose your life, not to hurt you, but to say this needs to be dealt with. Do you see this? It needs to be dealt with because you're my child and I've given you power and I want you to experience all the power that I have for you, okay? My prayer is that we will be more and more conformed to the image of Christ and that God will do amazing things in this church particularly and every church uh, that yields everything to God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. It's powerful, it's quick, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts us right, uh, right down to the marrow, Lord. Do it. Do heart surgery on us, Lord. Help us to be willing. Uh, and even if it's painful, Lord, help us to say, not my will, but your will be done. And Lord, help us uh, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who endured pain and suffering. And I pray, God, that you will bring us home to you one day and we'll hear those wonderful words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Thank you for this truth and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.